The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. So we are on week six, which is the last uh, panel in our gospel tract. Um, and so we have been going through, obviously the challenge for us as a church body is to take uh, this Two Ways to Live tract, which again, as we want to just reiterate, I don't care what you use whenever you share the gospel with people. I, and that's not true. I do care uh, what you use. There are bad ones out there, okay? Let's just be honest. Uh, but if you're sitting down and you're sharing the good news of Christ with someone, um, we are all, I just want to remind you, we're all going to do that imperfectly. Uh, we, we are all going to stumble over our words from time to time, and we are all going to have things that we walk away. I've never walked away from a gospel sharing conversation and thought to myself, I'm glad I said everything that I said and there's nothing that I wish I would have said that I didn't say. Uh, I've never done that. Every time I've walked away going, that's what I should have said. Why didn't I say that? You know, and those things you just don't think of at the time that you're there. So um, some gospel witness is better than no gospel witness. All right. So we're there to simply be faithful to what God has called us to. Uh, we're there to represent Christ. And so there are good and bad ways to do that, certainly. But, but we're hopeful that with this tract, it might be one tool in your hand that might just kind of put that uh, memory in your mind to say, hey, I could give this to this person. Or that just having it in your back pocket or in your purse, that it might just kind of be that little, you know, that, heavy boulder that you're just carrying around with you going, I, <laughs> this is, this is on, I need to do something with this, you know, and it might just be that spark in your mind to think, I, I really have a burden to give this to this person, or it might put somebody on your heart to pray for. So uh, that's kind of the idea of it. Over the last five weeks, we've been going through panel by panel through this particular track called Two Ways to Live. Um, I like this one in particular, if for no other reason then it presents, as we're going to see tonight, very clearly that there's no third way. That regardless of how you respond to me, you have made a choice. Because there's only two ways. Uh, and so it, it kind of it helps them to see the, the clarity that the gospel actually brings. You have to do something with this. And, uh, and so it, I think it does that in a very clear way. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this Last week, we looked at Jesus' resurrection in particular and kind of drew in really closely to it. Um, and, and we said last week, just as in summary, that death and the grave uh, is the penalty that a just God gives for rebellion against Him. So death itself, not specifically looking at the death of a particular person and saying, ha, see, He died because He sinned in this way like you might see Pat Robertson do, do or others like that. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about death itself is a result of sin in the world, both in the lives of individuals and just in the world as a result of Adam's fall. So death is a result of the penalty that a just God gives for rebellion against him. But Jesus, rising from the dead, proves to us that the penalty that he paid on the cross was actually paid. That the check cleared, as, as it were. That, as Peter says in his sermon, the grave had no hold on him. And the reason it had no hold on him is because the penalty for sin was paid. The only reason death would be holding somebody is because the penalty of sin had not been paid. But for Jesus, it, it had. And we then should expect, because of his resurrection... Uh, that he would be the only one suited, suitable to judge all of humanity. He is the perfect one. He is the resurrected one. And so therefore, he is the one perfectly suited to judge mankind. The sort of bad news of that, as we present the gospel or think of presenting it, is that the last judgment is definitive. In other words, when Jesus returns and we're all in front of the judgment seat of Christ, it's all over. It's too late at that point, in other words. You, you, you don't get uh, visible confirmation before you get to make a decision. Um, and that 
is a final confirmation of the grace and judgment of Jesus Christ on the cross and His resurrection. So that is, it's all over at that point. So what is then our plea? The plea of the Gospel, the reason we're trusting in Christ, is before the throne of God and before the judgment seat of Christ, is that His sacrificial death would atone for our sin. Now, we said, and this has kind of been, we've been unpacking this over the last few weeks. The reason that Christ can be substituted for our sin is, there's obviously a lot of reasons, but one in particular is that God in this case serves as not only the judge, but the offended party. So He alone is able to set not only what the judgment is, but when that judgment is satisfied. And He has placed Christ as the stand-in for us. But in, in our case, Christ who is not only God, therefore He is the judge and offended party, He's also the defense attorney for all those who by faith believe in His death and resurrection. So our plea is for Christ's death to stand in our place, which gives us our justification. Justification is that declaration before God's throne that we are pronounced not guilty. It's a declaration. So, justification is a fancy term for God saying not guilty to those who otherwise would stand guilty for sin uh, and now are considered righteous before Him. Okay, so what then do we do at the end of that? That, that, that is a, effectively here a, a, you know, the gospel message, as it were, as we've gone through over the last five weeks. But now we're standing in front of the person that we've been talking to, sharing the gospel, and, and now what? What is, the, what is the, you know, so they, they get to the point where they hear all this and they go, okay, so? So what, what, do, I, what do I do now? And, and that's a question a lot of Christians have is like, okay, I've presented the gospel, and now I'm not quite sure what I, what I tell them to do next. You know, what, what, is the, what is the thing? Well, let's remember a couple of things first. First, Remember that we're heralds, which is another way of saying proclaimers, sharers. We're the paper delivery boy, as it were. Uh, read all about it is our cry. We're the heralds of the good news of Jesus' resurrection. Now, if someone gives to you news, a fact that is earth-shattering, Paul Revere the British are coming. It's news, right? Do you have the luxury of hearing Paul Revere's cry and saying, "Ah, I don't care. Is that a response to news? Do you have the right to do that? Well, I'm sure, I'm sure you can. Does it change the news? It doesn't change the news at all. In fact, if nobody who listened to Paul Revere believed him, it wouldn't matter. The British were still coming, right? <laughs> so we have to remember that the truth of the gospel is not contingent upon the person hearing believing. So to remember what position you stand in. My job is really not as convincer, as Holy Spirit, as conscience of the person that I'm talking to. I can merely tell them the news. And I can do that in good ways, and I can do that in bad ways, but I, and I want to be better at it, but, but I'm telling them the news at the core of it. So when it comes to the gospel then, just like it would be with news, Paul Revere's right or whatever, there's really only two ways to live in light of it. The track says it this way. The first way... Is to, live, is to live is to continue in our rebellion against God, ignoring Him and running our own lives our own way. Sadly, this is the choice that many people continue to make. Um, so again, going back to Paul Revere, if I say, I don't believe you that the British are coming, then w when is my life going to end? When the British get there. Right? <laughs> that's, 
That's what the result is going to be of that. There's, again, just like with that, there's no two ways. So when we're talking about everyone standing before the judgment seat of Christ, what we're telling them is th there's only two ways. If you, if you don't take anything that I say and believe it, then this is going to be the result. Period. So what this helps to do, perhaps in the mind of the person that you're presenting to, or also a good way for you to think about it, is that it removes any notion that there would be any kind of middle way. There would be any, uh, well, maybe, a kind of, not really, and try to sort of split the baby, as it were, and, and sort of walk down some middle kind of path. So, because ignoring the news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead means necessarily that you just continue doing the same thing that you had done before you heard about it. So, some people, as you talk to them about the gospel, will feel that this, like, I'm just going to continue, I'm going to try to be good. They feel that that sort of represents some kind of middle direction, middle path, uh, between full submission to Christ and, and blatant rejection. Well, I don't really reject them, but I'm also not ready to do all that stuff you crazy Christians do. You know, I, 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 I get that. Um, you, I, I have seen this, I think, probably far more often in my own family, in the South, uh, I mean, than, than probably anywhere else. Um, th there's not many people that you run into in the South who just openly reject Jesus. At least not yet. I mean, there's, there are a lot. Okay, in fairness, there are. They're out there for sure. But you find it very commonly in the South that a lot of people will have kind feelings towards Jesus. Will, will even respect the New Testament, the Bible, may even have respect for Christ Himself and say to you, Oh, I believe. Yeah, I, I, I believe in God. I believe... Jesus, I believe he, he rose from the dead. When you ask people often in the South, how, are you saved? Are you a Christian? Oh, I grew up in the church. Oh, man. I, I, I believe that stuff. Yeah, of course. But this forces a, a distinction. Who are you submitting to as king? One of the things that I, I use all the time, and I didn't include this as a verse, is Matthew 13, Um which is Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man digging in a field. He finds a treasure, and in his joy, he covers the treasure. He goes and sells everything that he owns so that he can buy the field. And commonly when people either come into my office or I'm, I'm talking with them, and they're in that, they want to kind of be in that middle position. I believe in Jesus, I believe in God. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much fruit in their life at all. There's no desire to really follow Christ or have Him as King of their life. I typically read this verse, and I explain it just briefly. I say, this man has found heaven. This man has found salvation. This man has found Christ. There in the dirt. And in his joy, he says, nothing I have in this life is worth anything compared to that, and I will give everything to have that. Does that describe you when it comes to Jesus? I have not yet had one person in that middle position say yes. Almost everybody says no. It puts just a very stark clarity on what we're talking about here. Yes, this is demanding of a response. This is, this is a kind of... Uh, we're putting Christ on the throne of our heart. He is king now. And that's an altogether different proposition than many, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, you know, what do you want to do about it kind of, kind of ways. And so I, I think it's helpful to think of it that way. Um, so we often see people uh, in this position who will acknowledge belief in Jesus or belief in God, belief in His resurrection, or even the truth of the Bible, and yet continue to live a lifestyle that's antithetical to Jesus' commands. You shouldn't hesitate to put a question mark on the salvation of an individual like that. 
And this I find to be one of the hard parts about being a very merciful, sweet-natured Christian is that we, we, we want to think the best of people, we want to hope the best for people, and we will hear a person tell us that they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, I believe in all that stuff, but you know their life is filled with no kind of fruit at all that they have ever believed. And yet it's filled with all kinds of examples that they absolutely don't believe. They don't want anything to do with the church. They don't want anything to do with Christians. They don't want anything to do with the lifestyle of a Christian. They don't want anything to do with any of those things, and they don't try to live that way at all. It's not bad to say, but are you really? Is this you? Matthew 13, 44, is that you? Is that how you would describe yourself? It's not bad. As a, as a person who is concerned genuinely about their salvation to say, this is what Jesus is calling you to. If you say you are my disciple, then why are these things true of you? Right? It's, it's not bad to raise those questions in their mind. This is what Jesus is calling us toward. And if you are a Christian then, are we going to repent for these kinds of things? Come with me to church. Follow me as we walk through what it means to actually follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is calling us to anyway. So you may not even want to put a question mark on their salvation. You may not even want to be so bold as to say, okay, I have a question about that, right? That takes a lot of gumption to be able to do. I get that, okay? Maybe you don't want to do that. But maybe you could assume that they're telling you the truth. They do believe in Jesus. They do want to follow Jesus. Okay, then, here's what it means. Come with me to church. This is where the rubber meets the road of actually following Christ. I thought you said you were a Christian. Don't you want these things? I want these things for you. Right? So, it, it, we, we, we're far more often than we're confronting the just avowed atheist, far more often... We are confronting that person who has been grown up in the church or has confessed Christ at some point in their life, maybe even been baptized. And we're telling them, look, this is how Christ compels us to live. This is what it means to have him as king of our life. Um, there is no middle way. At the end of the day, there is no middle way. The very same Jesus who died and rose from the dead also compels our lifestyles to be ones that bring honor and glory to his name. So one either submits to his rule and authority, or one does not. That doesn't mean you're perfect. That doesn't mean you're perfect. But it does mean you're either submitting to his authority or you're not. So just some examples of this. Obviously, I, I stopped putting verses down here, but we could, I could have kept going. But... John 8, 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21 to 24, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Uh, that goes on. I could read more. Let's see, First John 2, 3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. First John 3, 24, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Now, there, there's a, a key thing that we have to remember here. That, you know, I, as I preached a couple weeks ago, you're forgiven. As a Christian, you're forgiven for all sins. All your sins were in the future. And so then you hear like, okay, well then, great. I, I'm, I'm saved, right? So then it raises the question in some people's mind, well, should I just, do I, do I can just go sin now and forever and it doesn't really matter? So on, on one side, I'm saying, yes, you are forgiven. If you're really forgiven of all your sins. You're forgiven. Before you ever lived, forgiven. Okay, but then how does this obedience thing work? I, I should be still compelled to obey. Well, John is even telling us it's the Spirit that he caused to dwell within us that compels us to obey. So the person who's telling you, I am a Christian. I do believe in Christ. 
what they're telling you is the Holy Spirit resides within me. So then it should be within reason that you should want to obey. Because the Spirit that He has put within you is driving you toward obedience. You're not earning salvation by obeying. That's not what He's saying. The Spirit that He has put within you drives you to obedience. So someone who's telling you, I am a Christian, then what they're telling you is, God's Spirit dwells within me. Then it should be reasonable for me to expect you to repent of sin and follow Christ. So the the invitation, come with me, follow me as I follow Christ, is a reasonable one for that person. And of course, if they reject that, it seems to give evidence to the fact there is not the Spirit of God living in them. Does that, does that make sense? Just We've got to make sure that the cart and the horse stay in the right positions, okay, is what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Um, all right. Uh, the one that I like the most, I didn't even read this one. I, I, I like this one the most because it puts a really fine point on it. It's Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It doesn't get any clearer than that. I don't care what translation you use. You put that verse in front of somebody, and it's, it's convicting, right? Even the whole house of Christians will kind of go, ooh, that's terrifying. All right. <laughs> so, um, now, importantly, rejecting Christ's rule and authority over our lives produces dire consequences. There are obviously certain uh, terrible outcomes to consider after death, but many fail to consider the pitfalls in the here and now. And this is what I, I, I you know, hope to raise uh, here in our gospel presentation as we're talking with individuals who are questioning now, what, what is it that I do? Um, it, we, we're going to raise the things that happen after death, right? It, there's eternal consequences as a result of rejecting Christ. But let's not ignore the temporal, the consequences today. There, there are actually things that happen today. So the end result of living this way is the inevitable and rightful judgment of God. That's eternal, right? We not only have to put up with the damaging consequences of rejecting God here and now, but we face the dreadful prospect of an eternity of separation from Him. So there's two real things. There is damaging consequences of rejecting God today. If you walk away from the gospel now, you don't respond at all favorably to Christ as King, and you just choose to live your own way. There, there are damaging consequences today that that actually produces. Um, when we sit on the throne of our own hearts, our lives become inherently self-serving. They can't be anything other than that. If you sit on the throne of your own heart, you serve yourself. The person that says no to the gospel is saying yes to them. So who is the one that determines their value system in that case? They are. That's the definition of self-serving. So even the person that says, well, I'm gonna, I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm going to try to be a better person. That is a value system that they've put there. The highest value that they can think of is trying to be a better person. So they're the ones that set that value system. That makes them the king of their own heart. You, you tracking? So being driven by self-interest obviously leads to manipulation, exploitation, harm to others to achieve goals. Tyrants and oppressors throughout history have been driven by self-interest. When one's highest value is what is personally gratifying in the moment, and getting out of life all that you can, both the individual and society as a whole, becomes morally bankrupt. So, what's that? Did I go too far? Oh, I gave you an answer. That's what I'm really upset. That's what I cannot stand... Keynote doesn't play nice sometimes with me, and I cannot stand that. Um, but society as a whole becomes morally bankrupt. Now, I want us to go back and think about 
session number two, I think it was, where we had set up the world that God has made. And we said the world that God made is good. And you can look around at creation and you can see that there is a finely tuned aspect to creation. That my heart beats. You can look at the human body, the cells in the human body, the eyeball, the way the eyeball works. And down to the, the, just the microscopic organisms on this planet alone. And you can see how finely tuned everything is and that God has clearly created this place. And not just that, but that it is done by a creator who is loving and good. You can see that. At the same time, you can see that it's off kilter. There's something wrong with it, right? For instance, we go to funerals. And everybody that's ever been to a funeral, I don't care if they're an atheist or a Christian, they go to a funeral and they sit there and look at the casket, and every single one of them thinks, something's not right about this. It's, you can feel it in here that there's, it's not right to go to a funeral where the casket is this long because there's a this long baby inside of it. That, that's not right. There's something very wrong about that. And, and so everybody feels that way. And then when they look around at society as a whole, even the most avowed atheist will look, look at society and go, injustice in the world? That's wrong. That's, that's, that's morally bankrupt, bankrupt stuff, right? These judges that, that just, you know, make verdicts on their own whim and fancies by their own rules and things like that all over the world. That's wrong. Everyone can see that. But when you ask, what is it that produces those kinds of judgments? For most people, the sin, if there is sin in this world, it lies out there. It lies with you. It lies with other people. Wait a minute. What is it that produces those corruptions in politicians or in people that you see on the news? What is that at the core? It's people being driven by their own self-interest. Well, if you have just now decided to sit on the throne of your own heart, what is it that drives you? Well, it's going to be that same self-interest. So why is it that we should trust you, but we shouldn't trust that corrupt politician when you're driven by the same self-interest? Why is that? Honestly, there's not a good answer for that. Well, because I'm a good person. A lot of those politicians or those whomever you see as the most corrupt people that are out there were driven the same way, right? I'm going to be a good person. I'm sure they have great reasons for the things that they did that you simply don't see. But it's, it, it produces the moral decay in society is being driven by our own self-interest. The only solution to that is putting the interests of someone else on the throne of your heart. But that person has to be perfect. That person's interests has to be totally good. What candidate qualifies as that kind of individual you can put on the throne of your heart and you can trust that his rule is great? Well, it's, it, there's only one candidate that fits the bill. So that's what we're presenting. That's why there's, there's only two ways. Because unless you have him on your heart, you've got you on your heart. Or, or maybe the person might say, well, no, I've got my wife and my kids. You know, their interests are ahead of me. Okay, well, that's the value system that you set, was that your kids and your wife should be at the, uh, up, up there that high. That's still you on the throne of your heart, because you're setting that value system. Right? That's what leads to moral decay. So that's kind of the here and now uh, consequences. But the reason for this, as we've already stated in week one and, and several others, is that when we do this, when we put ourselves on the throne of our heart, then we also deny the purpose for which we were created. So God has created you for the purpose of bringing honor and glory to Him. That was the reason you were made. 
So when you say, I don't want to follow Jesus, I'm going to be on the throne of my heart, now you're also denying the purpose for which you were created. So there's no way that ends up good in the long run. When you fail to work in accordance with, your, with the purpose that he, that he gave you. Until you acknowledge not only Him as Creator, but Him as Sovereign Lord and King and Eternal God, only then can you actually live in accordance with your purpose. Right? But obviously, that is here and now consequences. Eternal consequences only get more dire. It only gets worse. It doesn't get better. Um, our rejection of God's rule because of it we also face an eternity of separation from Him in hell. Facing God's judgment, trusting in our own righteousness, and desiring nothing from Him who is the source of all good leads to an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth. I, I want to read these, and then I want to just help us think about it for just a second. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Matthew 13, 50. They're thrown into the uh, fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these are terrifying. These are, these are the worst passages in Scripture. The most horrible, horrific things. Mark 9, 43-48. Your right hand causes you to sin. Cut it off. I want you to consider what he's actually telling people here. Your right hand causes you to sin. Cut it off. It's better that you enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better that you enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better that you enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where, the wor where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay, just consider what he's saying there for a second. Does your hand actually cause you to sin? Your hand is not the cause of your sin. Okay, So he's not telling you literally cut off your hand, but I want you to consider the parallel that he's drawing there. He's saying this would be better than to go to hell. What is hell like? It's worse than this. It's worse than gouging out your eye. It's worse than cutting off your foot. So if you can imagine the horror of somebody cutting off their hand, gouging out their eye, or cutting off their foot, Jesus is saying, you have no idea what hell is like. It's worse than that. So he's not saying literally cut off your hand, obviously, because that's not the cause of sin. But he is saying that would be better than the alternative, right? Here, here's the reason that I bring some of those up that I, I think they're helpful. Um, we should not be afraid to talk about hell. Consider how often Jesus actually uses it to help people understand their need for salvation. So don't hesitate. There's a culture out there that will tell you it's not favorable to talk about hell. Get rid of that judgment stuff. We'll happily accept the hippity-bippity-Jesus as long as you don't give us the fire and brimstone, Jesus. I don't want that stuff. But consider what Jesus did. He tells them flatly why they should really be concerned right now. Because hell is terrible and you don't want to go there. So whatever it takes to avoid that, it's worth it. Don't hesitate to say that. It might be unfavorable. It is going to be unfavorable. I still have not found one other presentation from any other religion that causes demons to shriek but the gospel. I haven't seen one other presentation from any other religion that causes people to get really mad and angry and upset and 
as was the case a couple months ago, shoot a guy in the head who's preaching the gospel on the street corner. By the grace of God, he lived. How? I don't even know. Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, by the way, happened in the state. I've only found one presentation that actually does that, and it's when you preach the gospel and you tell people, if you reject it, you're going to hell. So we shouldn't be shy about that. It it comes up in the gospels so many times. All right. Uh, So after considering the sobering reality... The sobering reality of eternal separation from God in hell for those who reject His grace, it's essential to recognize the hope and redemption offered through Jesus Christ. In the midst of our brokenness and rebellion, there is another way. A path of reconciliation and transformation available to all who turn to God in repentance and faith. This is how the tract says it. There is another way. We turn to God and ask for forgiveness, trusting in Jesus as the resurrected ruler and Savior. Everything changes. For a start, God wipes the slate clean. That is what salvation is in the here and now. What it means to be saved now. He accepts Jesus' death as payment for our sinful rebellion, and He freely and completely forgives us. He pours His own Spirit into our hearts and gives us new life that stretches past death and into eternity. We are no longer rebels, but part of God's own family. We now live with God's Son, Jesus, as our ruler. There's your other way. Now, what happens then when that takes place? when Christ becomes ruler, is that when He's on the throne of our hearts, we're driven now by His Spirit. That's what produces the obedience, is the Spirit that He has caused to dwell within us. And our lives undergo a profound transformation, unlike the inherent self-serving nature that comes from placing ourselves at the center Yielding to Jesus' lordship redefines our priorities and reshapes our desires. So what does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at Philippians 2, 3 to 4 to describe the kind of lifestyle that now comes as a result of following Christ and having Him on the throne. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So there's a priority shift, there's a desire shift that comes with following Christ that we grow into. So surrendering to the Lordship of, uh, of Christ, I skipped another one, didn't I? There it is. Surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus now opens the door to eternal life in God's new creation, a reality where Christ reign supreme in every heart where joy knows no bounds and peace is everlasting. I I want us, as we think about um, people that we're sharing the gospel with and them responding um, in faith even, or maybe them responding, you know, the other way, where they're maybe even trying to find a middle way. I want to live a good life and, you know, I want to, you know, I'll try to be better, you know, or that, that kind of thing. And I, I believe in Jesus, so I'll just try to be good, you know. I, I want us to, to think about, as we're sharing the gospel with people, a couple of different things. First of all, there's humility and grace that we're going into the conversation with. You have to understand that the kind of spiritual transformation often especially for people that, grow, that have grown up in church culture, okay? 
and have maybe heard this same thing before, that kind of thing, it often takes a long time. It's often a long relationship. So you just have to be patient with them. And, and, and trust that, look, when I share the gospel with you, I, I know that when, how many times have you had conversations with people that have been that serious? How many times did you walk away from that conversation and never think of it again? Ever. Probably not ever. When's the last time you had a conversation about life and death with somebody and then you walked away and immediately forgot everything you talked about? You never thought about it again and didn't keep you up at night? You didn't wake up the next morning thinking about it? has never happened to you in your entire life. And it's not them either. When you have that conversation with people, they're walking away and they're thinking about it. It's turning over in their mind. They may not ever do anything with it, and Satan may snatch it right away from them, right? And they may get the best sleep of their life that night, all right? And wake up the next morning and be concerned with other things, maybe. But you can bet the more you have those conversations with people, they're walking away and they're thinking about it. It's turning over in their mind. So you just have to trust that the Lord will do things with that conversation. However deep it was or shallow it was. Maybe it was just an invitation to church or maybe it was something much deeper than that. You, you just have to trust that he's going to use that in one way or another. So you pray for them as they contemplate these things. You pray for more opportunities, but, but you be really, really patient. So, um, another part of that is, if you've helped them to understand what the gospel message is, at that point, it's good to share your testimony. This is what Christ has done to me. This is what he's done for me. This is what he's done through me. This is what he's done in me. This is what he's done in spite of me. And, and, and help them to consider the impact that Christ has actually made to you. Now, I would help them to understand the gospel first and that there are only two ways to live. Because if you share your testimony first, it's not, look, if that's all you did, I, I'm not complaining. All right, But if, if that's the way you let off the conversation, it's going to produce the result of, well, that's good for you, and this is good for me. You're going to get that response 100% of the time. All right? but, but sharing the gospel, helping them understand there's only two ways to live, and then this is the way that I chose to live, and this is what the result is, is helpful. They can understand that. But, but more than anything, be, be incredibly patient. I shared the gospel with a guy one time. I worked with him for a year. And uh, he smoked a pack a day, two packs a day probably, drank 18 beers a night. I mean, literally would go home and drink 18 beers as he stayed up till 3 a.m. watching all kinds of recorded sports programming, ordered all kinds of magazines. Who knows? We spent over a year together and over the course of time, he came to know Christ. Probably about eight months in, came to know Christ. He didn't stop smoking immediately. I still went to every smoke break with him. Worked at Sears, selling refrigerators and vacuums. All right? Turns out there's a lot of dead time. Which is why Sears is no longer with us. All right? Okay? <laughs> so there was a lot of smoke breaks. Okay? Uh, when you're on commission, you take as many as you want, because, you know. So every time he went on a smoke break, I was right there with him. Didn't smoke one time. Not one time did I. And tolerated a lot of cigarette smoke coming right up my nostrils, all right? But by God's grace, I grew up around family members that probably 95% of them smoked. So I was totally used to it and fine, could barely even smell it, all right? So we sat there, and after he came to Christ, he continued to smoke. He continued to go get 18 beers a night. The magazines continued, but what I noticed is over the course of many years, the cigarettes quit. The drinking stopped. 
pornography stopped. And I would occasionally bring things up to him. We would talk about some of those things, but the Holy Spirit was the one to bring conviction. Just be patient. It, it takes time for people to understand these things. And you're not the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be. Also, you're not the one that's got the check boxes that's going, is, it re- is, he really, is he really a Christian? I don't know. Just teach them how to follow Christ. If that's what you say, I believe in Jesus. Okay, let me show you how to follow Jesus then. Let me show you what it means. Open the Bible with them. Read it with them. Talk with them. Have conversations with them. How does it work in your life? How does it work in your marriage? How does it do, what happens to this? What happens to that? Just be patient. Answer their questions the best you can. And you'll see over time, the Holy Spirit will begin carving away at those rough edges in their life as he's still doing with you and he's still doing with me. It just takes time. Questions? Either it was that clear or that confusing. I'm not sure which. <laughs> so just remember, with these tracks, you're not coming in on Sunday and we're going, how many did you give out this week? And uh, you know, We're not checking boxes, okay? That's not what we're doing. We're just wanting you to be faithful. I think this is a helpful tool for you to take. It gives some good cues. It's laid out really well. Take one home. On the back side is a label. It's got a place for you to write your name. Just go ahead and write your name on it. Hand it to them. It's an invitation to church. It's also a presentation of the gospel that you can walk through with somebody. If you can do nothing else but invite them to church and say, you should read this in your own time, if you can do nothing else but that, that's still okay. That's still good. right? And then as we grow in boldness, we can continue to speak more into their lives. Yeah, that was not my idea, that was Tom's idea. So, so if you see him, let him know about that. It was, it was very good, yeah. So just avail yourself of that and pray that you would have somebody to, to hand that out to. I'm praying for someone right now, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to have that conversation soon. So yeah, just do that and we can come and share. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There, there, believe me, there, there's a... So, I, I had high ambitions a year and a half ago or two years ago. This may have even been right before COVID hit that uh, I, was, I was thinking, okay, we're, we're going to knock on doors. And I'm like, I, I got, I'm going to map out the city and we're going to go and we're going to knock on doors. And then I was like, let's, let's reverse engineer this. Let's, let's learn how to share the gospel first. <laughs> let's, have a good, let's have a good pattern of sharing the gospel. Let's build this into the culture of our church. And then let's go knock on some doors. And we'll get there. We will get there. Believe me. Don't be scared about that now. All right? Don't be like, oh, no, he's going to take us. Just, just let's, let's work on just sharing with our friends. All right? And then, uh, and then we'll go to complete strangers. And it'll be fun. It'll be real fun. Oh, no, not cold calls. It's good conversations on doorsteps, and it, it doesn't get easier. It doesn't. <laughs> you, you get that drop in the stomach, and you get that, oh, nervous. But then it, it fades over the course of 20 doors. It's, you, and listen, what I have found, okay, just, this is anecdotal, okay, you know those stories that you hear from people, like that, just, they'll, missionaries or something like that, they'll, they'll come and they'll tell you these crazy things, you know how those crazy things happen to them? They go out and they start sharing the gospel with people. <laughs> That's how they see those things take place. Or you know those people that, like George Mueller and stuff like that, that, that have all these 
crazy prayer requests, like, like they have no food for their orphanage, and they start praying that the Lord would provide, and somebody, a bread truck breaks down, literally happened to George Mueller, bread truck breaks down outside the orphanage as they're praying, thanking God for the meal that he has not provided yet, and a bread truck breaks down at that very moment outside the orphanage, and the bread man just supplies the bread for all the kids. Now, tell me that that was a... Co- anyway, you know how that kind of stuff happens? George Mueller decided to open an orphanage and start praying that God would provide. So when you, it turns out, when you move into the front lines where there's live ammunition flying over your head, you start seeing the Lord providing for you in all kinds of ways that you never would have seen before. So it's fearful to knock on somebody's door. It's like it never gets easier, believe me. It's fearful to talk to your mother or to your friend or to whomever about the gospel. There's, it's, there's nerves always. There always will be. But what happens is you start to see the way the Lord is providing for you, opening your mouth, calling to mind verses that you never would have remembered otherwise. And you're, and you're like, how did that happen? I go home right now and I can't remember that verse. But at the coffee table, I quoted it verbatim from the ESV. How's that, how's that possible? Well, you start to see the way the Lord provides when you move out to the front lines. But it turns out, when you're sitting at home on your couch, there's not a lot of provision you need, to be honest with you. I mean, you just need Andy Griffith to come on next, right? And somebody to bring me a drink. You know, like, and that's, that's just not the kind of prayers that we're, we're interested in praying, right? It's when you're on the front lines that those things, you see that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for the good news. We're grateful for you opening our eyes to see our need for it. We pray that you will open the eyes of others that we talk to. Give us courage. Give us opportunity. Give us boldness. Give us the thought in that conversation to not get lost in the details of politics or of Uh, society or of all the myriad things we could be talking about, but bring our mind to the gospel and go, hey, maybe I should talk to this person, invite them to church, or share the good news of Jesus with them. I pray that you'd put that on the forefront of our minds everywhere we go, that we are heralds of the good news of the resurrection of Jesus, and that is a big deal. So I pray that you would give us that. Help us as we seek to see others come to know Christ too. So I pray that you would do that in us. Give us the boldness, the desire to love others in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 1030 and Wednesday nights at 615.